Arthur Machen once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Halloween's probably one of my favorite times of the year, as I'm sure it is for most everyone interested in these kinds of matters. For my Halloween episode, I decided to do some one-off readings from old newspaper articles on ghosts, curses, and Halloweenish things. There was another incredibly bizarre story I was going to cover from Brazil, but as I was looking more into that, well, I found enough that I think I might do just do a separate episode on that. It's still coming. The following story, detailing the Ghost Club of Crawfordsville, Indiana, and some of the stories told by its members, appeared around Halloween 1891 in the St. Louis newspapers. The lengthy article reads as follows. Crawfordsville is distinctly a city of clubs, and as such is noted all over Hoosierdom. There is the Gentlemen's Literary Club, of which General Lou Wallace, Maurice Thompson, President Tuttle of Wabash College, and Professor John M. Coulter, President-elect of the State University, are charter members. There is the Ladies' Literary Club, the Athenian, whose membership comprises some of the cleverest lady writers in Indiana. There is the Ananias and Sapphira Club, the rarest aggregation of lying sportsmen to be found anywhere, over whose farcical deliberations Honorable E.C. Snyder, judge of the Montgomery Circuit Court, presides with much gravity, deciding the worthiness of the stories told to be entered in the archives. There are the college fraternities, the social clubs, and the sportsmen's clubs, and last, but by no means least, is the famous Crawfordsville Ghost Club, or to use the name with which it is dignified by the members, the Society for the Advancement of the Belief in Ghosts. The unique organization has probably no parallel in the country. It is radically different from the spiritualistic bands which can be found in any city, although it is true that several of its members are confirmed spiritualists. The club was founded upon All Halloween in 1887 by William Ridley, Dr. Henry DeCall, and Professor Robert Burton. It now has in the neighborhood of 20 members, although initiations occur but once a year, and that upon the anniversary of the club's founding. There is but one paramount qualification for admittance to membership, and that qualification is a personal experience on the part of the candidate with a spook. Mere belief will not suffice. Personal experience is necessary. Every application for membership must be accompanied with the asseveration that applicant has, at some time during his life, seen a ghost. Most of the members of the club are men of more than ordinary intelligence and considerable education and standing. Thus it has come about that their belief is in the fundamental principles of their organization is openly questioned by outsiders. But if they are in the club for amusement's sake, they wisely keep their own counsel. Under a suspicion of being only pretended ghost believers, several gentlemen have been blackballed, much to their disgust. Still, however, it is the prevailing opinion that just about one-half of the members of this club are enjoying themselves at the expense of the rest, who really do believe in spooks and spirits. The club's meetings are held fortnightly, and at each one a paper is read by some member who purports to give a truthful account of his own personal adventure with a ghost. The veracity of these stories is never questioned by the Brotherhood, although they sometimes have a most unlikely smack. The meetings are rarely ever adjourned before midnight, and after these uncanny recitals, the average new member is said to often be too terrified to go abroad, and some have been known to frequently stay in the hall all night rather than run the risk of encountering the disentombed spirits which their imagination pictures as lurking in every alley and dodging about in the shadow of every electric light. The club room, or ghost lodge as it is called, can certainly lay claim to being the weirdest affair extent, 
It is a room about 20 by 40 feet in the fourth story of one of the principal business blocks. Its windows on the north overlook Oak Hill Cemetery, while those on the west look directly down into the jail yard, where four red-handed murders have been swung off into eternity in as many years. In the room itself occurred a murder many years ago, upon the very night that it was dedicated as a dance hall, and the ghost of the promising young buck then slain is said to frequently revisit the site of his untimely taking off. From a scaffold on the same building, a painter fell some years later, and was dashed to death on the cruel flagstones below, while still later an old lady dropped dead from heart disease while searching for an erring son who was playing poker in the hall, which was then a gambling den. These terrible associations had much to do with the selection of the room, and when it was once fitted up, its ghastly decorations made its hideousness complete. It is hung entirely in white. White cheesecloth drapes the walls and ceiling. White canvas covers the floor, and even the window glass is painted white. On the other hand, every article of furniture is as black as midnight, except such paraphernalia as the skeletons. In each corner of the room stands one of these genial customers, grinning horribly, and each one has a duty to perform, for in every empty cranium there is a small lamp with a red glass chimney, and for the hall these lamps furnish the only light which pours in lurid streams through empty eye sockets and grinning mouths of these four repulsive sentinels. The table at which the president and secretary sit is an old dissecting table, purchased some time ago from the Indiana Medical College. The president, to call order, rings a large dinner bell which hangs from the ceiling above. This bell was obtained from the ruins of a farmhouse, in the conflagration of which an infant perished. And in order to ring it, the president pulls the identical rope with which Jack Henning was hanged, not 300 yards away, in 1887, for the murder of his sweetheart. The seats in this room were all made with the timbers of the scaffold from which Henning and three others dropped to glory, and which the sheriff was only too glad to sell when the law requiring all executions to take place in the penitentiary went into effect. There is a library of some hundred books in the room, all treating of ghosts and ghost life. There is a museum also, and in it are to be found relics most ghastly and curious. There is the bloodstained club with which Chris Coffey beat old man McMullen and his wife to death, the spade with which the old sexton of the Masonic Cemetery dug over 500 graves, and which he was clutching tightly in one stiffened hand when found cold in death one fine morning. There is the cup which Reverend Pettit is said to have mixed poison for his wife, the knives and revolvers of murderers and suicides, and other implements of a similarly hair-raising character. The club has expended no little money in preparing its quarters, and every month or two some new horror is added to its already startling outfit. There is no particular secrecy about the organization, and its stories are often related on the outside, the papers even being loaned for perusal to non-members. A fair idea of the character of these papers may be obtained from the appended. Several years ago, Buck Stout was hanged at Rockville, Indiana, after taking a change of venue from Montgomery County. His victim was a huckster named Dunbar, whom Buck, having enticed to a lonely place in the woods, killed and robbed. Although arrested at once for the crime, none of the stolen money was found upon the murderer, who died stoutly protesting his innocence. Soon after the execution, his old neighbors near Darlington began to complain of the visits of the ghost of this deceased gentleman. In this connection, Buck's attorney, Colonel John R. Courtney, read sometime since the following paper before the Crawfordsville Ghost Club. It was not long after my handsome client Buck Stout had been hanged that reports began to come to me from Darlington to the effect that his ghost was promenading around that section of county terrifying the women and even causing the marrow of Darlington's brave men to turn a trifle cool. Knowing that my client had died a guilty man, with a terrible falsehood upon his lips, I was not at all surprised to hear of his spirit's perambulations, but I candidly confess that I was surprised at the visit which that spirit paid me, and at the results of it as well. I was busied with my practice, and paid but little attention to the ghost talk until one night, about three months after the rumor became current, when the matter was brought home to me in a most forcible manner. T'was in October, and after a hard day's work I had retired to my rooms, very tired, nervous, and about half sick. 
I retired early, but although much much fatigued, I was unable to fall asleep. Hearing the old church clock strike the weary hours, I tossed and tumbled about on my couch until after eleven o'clock when I fell into an uneasy slumber. I judged that I could not have slept over a few minutes when suddenly I found myself wide awake and sitting up in bed trembling as with a chill. In accents all too familiar, spoken as from a far-off planet, but terribly distinct, I had heard my name called. Breathlessly, I listened for a repetition of that plaintive wailing cry. And it came. From whence I could not tell. From all around me, from an infinite distance, from nowhere. But it came, and the following words rang through my soul rather than through my ears. John! John! For the good Lord's sake, come down to the office. Come down at once. There was no mistaking that voice. It was that of my unfortunate client, stout but with a wonderful, wonderfully sepulchral and subdued. As in a dream, obeying an influence I could not, neither cared to, control, I arose, and having dressed, passed silently out into the night. A death-like stillness hung over the deserted streets, and the pavements were weird and startling. I hesitated at the foot of the stairway which led to my office, but shaking off my fear, I climbed the steps and unlocking the door pushed it wide open. Curiously, I gazed into the dark interior. I saw nothing, but gradually became sensitive of another presence than mine. Again on the threshold, I hesitated, but taking heart as before, I marched boldly in and closed the door behind me. I had crossed the room and was about raising a window when the old voice, still far off it seemed, exclaimed, John, don't you know me? I quickly wheeled, and standing not six feet away, I beheld the ghost of my client. There was no doubt about its being only his ghost, for I had seen the sturdy buck meet a fearful death, and had afterwards seen his cold and silent corpse packed safely away under six feet of clay. And then it was a good old-fashioned honest ghost I saw before me, pale, shadowy, and woebegone, silently awaiting my response, with its ethereal legs sadly mixed up in the wastebasket. Buck, said I. I fear my voice was somewhat shaky. How are you? I'm in torment, replied the ghost, as it passed its airy hand over its airy brow, as though to wipe away immaterial perspiration. I died with a secret, and I'm in torment. I come to you now for aid, and I want you to do me a last favor. Buck, I returned. When I took your case, I said I would stand by you till the end. I thought the end was over months ago, but a lawyer should always be loyal to a client. So name your request, and I will grant it. That ghost gave a positive sigh of relief, and its countenance lighted up as you have sometimes seen the moonlight up the fleece-like clouds after emerging from a thunderbank. John, it whispered, your last service is by far your greatest, as you will in future learn. I want you to act in behalf of justice now. I want you to make partial restitution to poor Dunbar's widow. When I shot him out there in the woods, here the ghost shuddered like steam vapor blown by the wind. I buried his money on the south side of that oak stump near which they found him. I left $337 there and I want you to get it for his family. Then maybe I can rest. Promise me now to do it, John, and the whisper died wearily away. Of course I promised, and now being quite at ease with my translated client, or rather with the translated spirit of my late client, I undertook some little research into the question of spiritual entity. Buck, queried I, after a painful pause in which my caller seemed preparing itself for departure. How is it where you are? Do they treat you well? The ghost actually squirmed, and fidgeting with an, with an imaginary button on its imaginary vest, asked an evident embarrassment of the time. I quickly called the hour, and before my guest could bid me farewell, I had again launched into the subject of eschatology by inquiring, Now, old fellow, what's the use in your trying to dodge the point at issue? What's the climate of your present abode? Come, say. I was aware of the fact that Buck had been a great admirer of the myriad-minded bard during his imprisonment, but was wholly unprepared to hear his ghost declaim in piping far-off accents, but that I am forbid to tell the secrets of my prison house. 
I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul. Freeze thy young blood, make thy two eyes like stars start from their spheres. Thy knotted and combined locks to part, and each particular hair to stand on end, like quills upon the fretful porcupine. But this eternal blazon must not be to ears of flesh and blood. No sooner was the last word uttered than my visitor, who had been growing more and more shadowy throughout his speech, disappeared, leaving my office in its one at gloom. So suddenly, however, did a realization of the ghost's departure come upon me that I lost no time in vacating the room, and was conscious of stumbling over the wastebasket and several chairs in making my exit. How I got home into bed I cannot recall, but next remember my awakening the following morning with a splitting headache and a perfect recollection of my late experience with a spook. Although, as I say, my recollection in regard to my midnight visitor was extremely vivid, nevertheless I was more than half inclined to doubt it, and by the time I had disposed of my breakfast, I was almost ready to believe that I had been the victim of a nightmare, grim and horrible. I was to be undeceived, however, for on reaching my office I found the door wide open, as I had left it in my flight the night before. Three chairs were upset, and the contents of the wastebasket strewn recklessly over the floor. I dropped helplessly into a chair and sat there for half an hour, when I arose and proceeded to a livery stable. In three hours more, I had visited the scene of the murder and found buried in a, wood, in a small wooden box at the side of the oak stump the $337 of blood money. I lost no time in tendering this sum to Dunbar's family and advised them to keep quiet in regard to the matter. This they certainly did, and my experience ended with the restitution. The ghost of my client is the only ghost I have ever saw, but for all that I believed in ghosts before, I ever heard of Buck or his ghost either. For the uneasy spirit of my own great-grandfather once walked in the ruins of his old manor house in Ireland, armed with the very pistol he grasped when killed in a duel of his own provoking. My great-grandfather had been a hard man, and half the booby squires in the county took a shot at his ghost with their blunderbusses during his moonlight strolls about his old home. None of them ever seemed to discommode him, but every mother's son of them met with some misfortune soon after encroaching on his solitude, and I have no doubt that their ills were visited upon them by the spirit they had wantonly insulted. It is always best to be deferential to a ghost. A few miles from the sleepy village of Yountsville stands a large, rambling old structure known in the country roundabout as the Hibernian Mill. Over a mile from any public road, the only approach to it is along a grass-grown, deserted lane. And looming up as the mill does, moss-covered and desolate, a frowning bluff in its rear, and the forest on every side, it is not strange that the very surroundings should give rise to tales of the weird and supernatural. Many years ago, the creek which furnished the mill with its power changed its bed, and where once a roaring torrent dashed down the ravine, a tiny spring-fed brooklet winds dreamily through the dark shadows to the river. The change in the creek's bed rendered the mill worthless, thus ruining its owner, who suddenly disappeared soon after his misfortune. What became of them was never known until two years ago, and how the mystery of his disappearance was finally solved is told by James R. Hanna in the following paper recently read before the club. It was in the summer of 1887 that a party of college friends and myself went into camp at Indian Ford, a few miles above Yountsville, in the vicinity of the Hibernian Mill. The hunting and fishing were excellent, and as for the solitude, there was a superabundance of it. The old mill was the only building in a radius of two miles, and that was so covered with Virginia creeper and other tangled vines that it resembled a great bank of fiery blossoms and bright leaves rather than the handiwork of men. Before coming, I had heard much of the ghost of the old miller, Garineau, that walked of nights, and was, and was held in respect by the county folk that they would not come within half a mile of the mill to gather berries or search for straying cattle. The mill had been built in an outlandishly wild place in order to obtain advantage of a splendid fall and other natural aids to the milling business. When the great freshet of 1868 threw the bed of, the, of his creek four miles away, Garineau, 
who was dependent solely upon the mill, was practically reduced to pauperism. A childless widower, he had lived for years reticent and solitary, but after his misfortune he became sullen and morose, never stirring from his windmill. A few farmers called on him occasionally, and found him either sitting in the, on the mounting block in front with his face buried in his hands, or wandering aimlessly through the great building, which, though worthless now, had once cost him a small fortune. His visitors became less numerous, and his moroseness greater. He would converse with no one, and finally two speculators who came to purchase his machinery could find him nowhere. His room contained all his effects, but he was gone from the world. Years passed, and the property was sold for taxes. A part of the machinery and the millstones were removed, but the old structure was allowed to stand, a melancholy monument to the uncertainty of human aims and expectations. Yet though the mill stood there so silently, it was, it was rumored about in time that the ghost of old Garineau held high carnival in the lonesome rooms. Sturdy schoolboys, who passed their days playing truant in the woods, came whimpering home at dusk with wild tales of having seen an apparition at the mill. Squirrel hunters saw the hant as they quietly crept up the old creek bed, peering about for game, and they usually lost no time in giving it a wide berth. Uncle Jimmy Dawson, the veteran coon hunter, was out with his hounds one night and treed a coon in a small buckeye just behind the mill. Now, Uncle Jimmy wasn't afraid of hants, not he, and was swinging his axe with a right good will, when suddenly his eager hounds dropped their tails, and uttering low whines, sulked off rapidly into the brush. Uncle Jimmy, looking up from his work to see what caused all this, and saw what made even his stout heart quail, and giving vent to a squall of terrified dismay, he fled precipitously from the spot. Looking from the window of the mill loft was the ghost itself, frowning angrily down upon him and attired, as Uncle Jimmy afterward maintained, in the same red cloak that old Garineau wore many years before, when the mill was opened at the time of the grand barbecue given in its honor by the countryside. In view of all those experiences, then, it is not strange that the simple and superstitious people of that section soon learned to shun the wild dell at whose mouth the haunted mill stood like a sentinel guard. With the spirit of romance and bravado, so incident to youth, the members of our camping party delighted to hunt up and down the ghost-ridden glen, declaring that we would shoot the spook on sight. We kicked open the rotten door of the old mill and sacrilegiously joked and declaimed in the gloomy cobwebbed rooms, which for years had known no other earthly visitants. We ascended into the great storeroom above, and in the gloom and confusion one of the boys came near to falling through a black hole in the center of the floor. This hole was the opening into, into a sort of chute into which grain had once been poured, which would conduct it to the hopper. Over two feet at the opening, it gradually narrowed until at the hopper, this funnel was but six inches in diameter. The hole was then filled with dust and cobwebs, and would have been anything but a pleasant place into which have fallen. We explored the garret or loft, and looked down from the window upon the very buckeye tree at which Jimmy Dawson was hacking away when interrupted by the ghost. We sang and hallooed through the old shell in a most demonstrative manner, and if our spook was anywhere in hearing, it must have been mortally offended. We had been in camp for probably ten days, when late one afternoon it was discovered that some of our supplies were entirely out. It fell to me, after some parlay, to ride six miles to Yountsville and stock up. Hunting our horse in the pasture required some time. And when I passed the old mill on my way to the village, it was almost nightfall, and when I finally reached the pike, after a hard ride down the, down the deserted lane, it was dark. It was after nine o'clock when I left Yountsville for my return to camp, and in the west the clouds hung black and glowering, obscuring the moon which had lighted me on my way. Long before I reached the lane, over whose rough and broken way I dreaded to ride in total darkness, the heavens were reverberating with the echoes of the thunder which had heralded the, uh, the approach of a beating storm. I cursed my bad luck most heartily, and reaching the lane, I lashed my horse along the perilous route at the imminent risk of breaking both our necks. The occasional flashes of lightning kept me keenly alive to a sense of my danger by revealing the stones, washouts, and gullies in the path. But, 
Intent on reaching the sheltering mill before the rain poured down, I urged my panning beast forward. We were about a hundred yards from the old building when the first large drops began to patter on the parched, gasping earth. And I had barely time to lead my willing horse through the wide door, which we had kicked open a few days before, when down came the rain. A puff of wind, accompanied by a dash of rain, a momentary, death-like lull, a crash of thunder, and the storm was on. The building swayed with the violence of the wind, and through the numerous large cracks the water came dashing in, wetting me to the skin. I recollected that the ware room was boarded on the inside for protection from the dampness, and lost no time in running up the rickety stairway to this dry retreat over twenty feet above. It seemed warm and inviting, and throwing my saddlebags in a corner, I sat down upon them, resolved to wait until the storm had passed over before I started for our camp, which was a mile away, down a rough and brush-grown creek bank. Gradually, the fury of the storm spent itself, but as the rain continued to descend in torrents, I determined to spend the night where I was, and closing my eyes, I was soon fast asleep. It must have been almost midnight when I was awakened by hearing my horse in the room below give a terrified scream which sounded almost human. Before I was fairly awake, I heard him tearing from the mill room out into the night. The rain had ceased to fall, and the last beams of the declining moon lighted up the large room through its one great window with an unearthly glow. Startled by the commotion made by my horse, I sat up in the corner and was in the act of raising my hands to rub my eyes when I fell back in a helpless heap, for coming up the, door, up the stairway from below I saw the ghost. An old man with a set and careworn face, a fierce hunted light shining in the eyes, which seemed to see nothing, a trembling hand which drew tightly around his slight bent form, a bright scarlet cloak. That was the ghost. Overpowered with conflicting emotions, I sat breathlessly watching my strange companion from another sphere. He saw me not, but murmuring and gibbering to himself began to pace the room. I could not distinguish all his speech, but ruin, ruin, ruin was the burden of the self-communion. At first he passed quite close to me as he walked around the musty ware room, but gradually his circle became smaller and smaller as he neared the center. Finally he paused almost at the edge of the chute and groaned. I was gazing intently at him, when suddenly he took a forward step and like a flash shot down the chute with a shriek, which is still ringing to my ears. This cry broke the spell which bound me, and leaping to my feet, I rushed down the stairs and fled out through the bushes which were dripping with the water, and which cut and chilled me as I brushed them hurriedly aside. I paused not until I reached our camp, and fell almost fainting among my companions, who had been awakened by the arrival of my horse some time before, and who were just preparing to set out in search of me. I was too greatly excited and fatigued to give a coherent account of my adventures that night. But the following morning, after a good breakfast and a drink of brandy, I managed to tell my story. So real was it all to me, the shouts of laughter which my companions received it filled me with surprise, anger, and disgust. Hot words were followed by mutual apologies, and after a good deal of persuasion, I was induced to return to the mill with two of my friends, Binford and Fox, in quest of the supplies which I had left there the night before. I was still angry, and it annoyed me not a little to be conscious of the fact that my companions were silently chuckling at my expense. Binford, in his loud bluff way, insisted upon relating the exceedingly flat story of Harry and the guidepost, while Fox graciously condescended to repeat a short poem which treated of a ghost which proved to be a frog. Fairly choking with collar, I arrived at the mill, and proceeded with my friends up into the ware room to get the saddlebags. I had picked them up and was turning away when I heard Binford exclaim, What's this? And looking to the quickly looking to where he stood in the center of the room, I saw him holding up what caused beads of perspiration to stand out on my forehead and my limbs to shake with terror. He held in his hand a large scarlet cloak, the identical garment, it seemed, the ghost had worn the night before, the same pattern, the same shade. I almost looked to see it vanish into thin air, but no, it was good stout material. For a moment the terrible thought struck me that perhaps I had been the witness of a real catastrophe, 
that perhaps a fellow being had fallen into the chute before my eyes and perished. A glance into the hole, however, undeceived me. Those cobwebs have not been removed for many years. This is the same cloak your ghost wore, Hannah, exclaimed Binford with a jarring laugh. The old fellow was probably just retiring for the night when you saw him, and as his cloak is here yet, he's probably still in bed. If so, we'll rouse them out. Stepping to the side of the room, he tore off a long weather strip, which was fastened over a crack, and returning, threw it into the funnel with a loud halloo. Instead of shooting through to the hopper, as we expected, it met with some impediment about halfway down, and stopped there, the end still protruding into the ware room. Binford seized the pole and began to prod the obstruction vigorously, calling out that he had the ghost cornered now and would finish him forever. A great fear began to take possession of my soul. It's a bag of wheat which has fallen down and stuck there, Binford finally exclaimed. But it feels queer, too, he added as he gave it another poke. Just to satisfy myself, I'm going down below and split the old chute open to see what's in it. Curiously, we followed him. And in my heart, I felt what the result of that search would be. Climbing upon the hopper, Binford thrust an old crowbar between the decaying boards of which the chute was made, and with a mighty wrench tore one of them off. Both my companions gave a cry of horror at the spectacle revealed, but I, expecting such a sight, stood by almost unmoved. There, wedged tightly in the grain chute of his own mill, was the distorted and mummified body of old Miller Garneau. The flesh and skin had, had dried like parchment, but still the ghastly yellow face exhibited traces of the unutterable agony in which the poor wretch had died. No need to explain the manner of his death. I had seen a spiritual repetition of the tragedy the night before, and my companions stared alternately at me, the scarlet cloak, and the withered corpse with superstitious horror. We said but little, and since that day my friends have shunned the discussion of our dread discovery. The following day the campers and several neighbors laid the body of old Garneau to rest in a country graveyard several miles away, wrapping him in the same scarlet cloak which had led to the discovery of his remains. Since then the ghost has never once been seen, although the place is still shunned by the country folk, my experience rather increasing the feeling of superstition with which it is regarded. I have never solved the mystery of the Scarlet Cloak. I know it was not there the day we first explored the old mill, and all the old inhabitants stated that it was undoubtedly the garment of the unfortunate miller. I can swear I saw the ghost attired in it, but that is all. It is to me forever a part of the great mystery which unites the natural with the supernatural, the material with the immaterial. J.A. Green, Crawfordsville, Indiana, correspondent of the St. Louis Globe Democrat. Notorious outlaw Jesse James was apparently followed for many years by a headless phantom, or at least such was his claim. The headless horseman was ascribed various attributes by James, from helpful guiding phantom to banshee or death omen. An accounting of this appeared in 1888. It may not be generally known that the James family has a banshee, yet such is the fact and the phantom horseman that frequently appeared to Jesse James is as much a part of the traditions of that bold knight rider as many of the more current incidents in his wild career. The story of the phantom horseman was first related by Frank James to Orth H. Stein when the two were prisoners and for a time cellmates in the jail at Independence. It was just after the surrender of Frank James when he was awaiting trial for the Blue Cut and Winston train robberies in this county. Stein was awaiting the outcome of a motion for a new trial after a jury had found him guilty of killing George Fredericks in this city and assessed his punishment at 25 years in the penitentiary. Through the intricacies of law and the uncertainties of juries, both were afterwards released. During their long and tedious confinement, however, they were wont to while away the hours with stories of their respective careers. It was due to one of these recitals that the writer learned that the James family, and particularly Jesse, had a peculiar banshee in the shape of a white horse and phantom horseman who appeared to warn them of danger. Although reluctant to taciturnity to speak of any matters connected with his earlier life, Frank James has since admitted that Jesse possessed the firmest faith in the omens brought by the visits of this phantom. 
The story of the phantom horse which guided Jesse on his way, warned him of impending danger, and finally foretold of his death, is also believed in by Mrs. Jesse James and Jesse James Jr., the son of the deceased outlaw, who have more than once heard him speak of the visitations of the strange phantom. The last time the dead outlaw saw this phantom was just before his death, and it appeared in such a horrible shape and with such evident warning in its mien that even the nerves of the grim outlaw were shaken, and he was weighed down at once with a sense of impending doom. Frank James' simple description of the appearance of the Phantom Horseman is as follows. One night we were riding along a lonely road in Tennessee. It doesn't matter just when it was or where. Jesse and I were, ri were riding along ahead, a little in advance of the rest of the party. There were five or six in the party. Suddenly we came to a broad open space where two roads met and branched off in three different directions. We emerged from under a cloud of heavy overtopping foliage into a broad flood of moonlight. It had been very dark in the woods under the heavy trees, and the bright moonlight lying thick and golden in the, on the broad dusty new roads fairly dazzled us for a moment. There, standing directly in front of us as if to dispute our passage, clearly defined in the bright moonlight, was the figure of a horseman on a white horse. We drew rein and stood for a moment, stock still. The figure in the road did not move. The moonlight shone directly on his dark coat, with bright shiny buttons of some kind, brass or pearl, and glimmered on the silver trappings on the horse's bridle. Jesse was the first to recover himself, and with lightning-like rep rapidity, he drew his gun with an oath. What do you want there, he said. The figure did not move or speak. My God, don't shoot, said one of the party. It's a ghost. Jesse's revolver went off at the same moment. The figure raised one of its hands, pointing the index finger at Jesse, while at the same time the horse turned and the horse and rider galloped off up the road. I have seen him before, muttered Jesse, as he turned his horse in the other direction. It is said that one of those men who was a witness of the strange encounter, the man who cried, don't shoot, was Bill Ryan. Ryan is now doing time in the Missouri Penitentiary. Frank James, who was probably less superstitious than Jesse or most of the other companions of the James boys, never took as much stock in Jesse's ghost, as the boys called it, as the great head of the outlaws and his rough riders did. He admits, however, that Jesse was haunted by a phantom horseman, or fancied he was, until the day of his death. Jesse was always furious if anyone questioned the authenticity of his ghost. Frank was once asked, Do you think that it was a ghost that you saw that night, or a man Jesse shot at and missed or failed to kill? I don't know, was the reply. Jesse seldom missed at less than ten yards distance. Anyway, that was the first time I saw the Phantom Horseman. Mrs. Jesse James, who lives on Prospect Avenue in this city, is a ladylike looking woman who seems to mourn for her husband. On being questioned, she had heard Jesse speak of a phantom horse, which followed him about for warning him of danger. The appearance of the phantom foreboded evil, but Jesse generally managed to avoid evil by taking the warning in time. Jesse James Jr., only heir of the great land pirate, was more communicative. Jesse Jr. is 15 years of age and, in a strange irony of fate, works for T.T. Crittenden and Sons, for that very governor of Missouri who hounded his father to death and deceived his uncle Frank after the surrender of the latter. The story of the boy's engagement to work in Crittenden's real estate office is worth a short diversion. The boy, it appears, answered an advertisement for an office boy. Half a dozen eager applicants were there before him. Crittenden asked him what he could do. I'll fight, run a foot race, or write a letter with any of the three kids for the job, answered the brigand's son. Write a letter, said Crittenden. Jesse complied and proved to write a better hand than any other applicant. What is your name, asked the ex-governor kindly. Jesse James Jr., answered the boy. Doubtless ex-governor Crittenden was surprised to find that he was about to hire the son of the notorious Jesse, whom he had hired the assassins to kill, as the boy and his mother were to learn that the former's employer was the ex-governor. But to return as the novelist says... The boy was disposed to be quite communicative in regard to the Phantom Horseman. Dad first saw that horse in Kentucky, said the boy. T'one in Tennessee at all. I've heard my mother tell about it, and I've heard Dad tell about it. One night, the man on the Phantom Horse jumped up behind Dad. The ghost left the horse and jumped up on Dad's. 
Dad was with another man riding along in Kentucky. Dad rode as hard as he could and fired his pistol behind him, but he couldn't shake the ghost off until he had gone half a mile. The thing then dropped off. Another time, when we was all over at Kearney, continued the lad, Dad saw the ghost come in the yard on horseback and shot at it seven or eight times, but could not hit it. This is the story of the Phantom Horseman as told by the family and companions of Jesse James. Did this dim shadow follow the stricken brothers along the harrowing road from Northfield, Minnesota, taunting them with a pseudo-prospect of deliverance? Was it with them in their shadowy night ride about Kansas City, when more than once they, dis they appeared and disappeared as mysteriously as the Phantom Horseman himself? No one can tell, for on such subjects, the lips of the survivors are sealed. St. Louis Globe Democrat Orth Stein, mentioned in that article, also may very well be a subject of a future episode. He was a pretty interesting character. Spiritualism was all the, rain, all the rage in the 1870s, and as has been discussed many a time in many a book or podcast, it was also rife with cons and people who took advantage of the superstitious nature of others to fleece people out of their money. One such con took place in Peoria, Illinois, and the culprit was a young girl. The particulars of an adroit and cunning imposture, practiced for more than a year by a young girl not 13 years of age in Peoria, Illinois, are given at great length by the transcript of that place in its issue for the 10th inst. The girl's name is Margaret Corvell, and she is the daughter of a laborer. The transcript says the scene of her operations was at the residence of Mrs. Lydia Bradley, in whose service she has been for something over a year. The role which the girl played was that of a spiritual medium. It would appear that she was led into the practice by the fact that some of the young ladies in Mrs. Bradley's neighborhood had been holding seances at the house, at which they had received some manifestations. It also came to her knowledge that Mrs. Bradley, at one time, during the lifetime of her husband, had visited a medium in St. Louis and obtained what purported to be a communication from a deceased daughter. Before Margaret went into service at Mrs. Bradley's, an elder sister was in service there. While the latter was there, Mrs. Bradley lost a number of articles, among them a lot of sheets and pillow slips. Mrs. Bradley was strongly advised by the girl to apply to a certain medium in the city for information as to the thief, saying that she had obtained information of a lost veil. Having full confidence in the honesty of the girl, Mrs. Bradley, accompanied by a lady of the neighborhood, did visit the medium, and to the astonishment of both ladies was told that she was expected. The spirit of Mr. Bradley had been there the day before and announced her coming. The medium, though a stranger to Mrs. Bradley, showed herself to be perfectly acquainted with all her domestic affairs, giving her and her husband's Christian names. Whether Mrs. Bradley received any information as to the party who stole her bedclothing, we do not know. At any rate, Mrs. Bradley, though surprised at the revelations, was not converted. By and by, the elder sister went away, and the young one, who had some time before come into service, remained. The latter spiritualistic powers commenced in December 1873, and in a manner to create surprise, but not exactly to create suspicion of imposture. Noises would be heard. Tables, chairs, and other furniture would be moved under her influence. In one instance, while the girl's hands were held tightly by an obstinate unbeliever, there came a heavy crash on the piano on the opposite side of the room, entirely out of her reach. At another time, with her hands placed on a small stand and Mrs. Bradley's hands firmly grasping hers, the stand moved across the room toward the piano. A small tea bell on the stand was sounded, another call bell was struck, and the piano played, all at the same time. Mrs. Bradley thinks that the two tea bells on the stand were both rung together, but the girl says not. At still another time, the stand worked its way into an adjoining bedroom, Mrs. Bradley all the while tightly grasping the hands of the girl and feeling no movement. A pillow was taken from the bed, thrown on the stand, then pushed against Mrs. Bradley, and then thrown over the bed. Then the bed was violently jerked away from the wall and out into the room, 
and various other performances going through with. In all these cases, the rooms were darkened. In one other instance, when the girl was dressing Mrs. Bradley's head one afternoon, the folding doors between the parlor and the sitting room were opened and closed. Mrs. Bradley's hands and ears were touched, and her breast pin unloosed, etc. Mrs. Bradley at first supposed it to be the work of some children, but was quite surprised to learn no children were present, while the girl solemnly affirmed that it was not her work, which Mrs. Bradley the more readily believed, as she knew her to be dressing her hair during the entire performance. The above were not the only surprising performances. Notes purporting to come from the late Mr. Bradley would suddenly appear. Nobody knew from whence. A watch belonging to a deceased daughter, which Mrs. Bradley had locked away in a private drawer, was discovered under her plate at mealtime. No one but Mrs. Bradley had, it is supposed, a key to the drawer, and the existence was not known to the girl so far as they know. Then some of Mrs. Bradley's jewelry was found under her plate, and what was more perplexing than all else, a trust deed known to be locked in the safe in the office attached to the residence suddenly turned up in the same place. Mrs. Bradley's agent, Mr. A.F. Johnson, and a nephew of Mrs. Bradley's stopping with her, were ready to make affidavit that they had not removed it from the safe and no one else had access. All these wonderful things had been accomplished, but it was not all. The spirit stole. Mrs. Bradley at one time placed $100 in her private drawer together with other money, and $15 in the same drawer enclosed in her bank book. The next day, on going to, for the money, $15 of the $100 were missing, and also the $15 in the bank book, and how much more she cannot say. It is needless to say, all those things excite a suspicion, but Mrs. Bradley could not believe the girl a thief and imposter at the same time. Besides, the mysterious notes from her dead husband, and all the communications she obtained through the girl as a medium, were calculated to lead suspicion from her. There were those who believed the girl was an imposter, but they couldn't detect her. Mrs. Bradley had a teacher give her music lessons and sent her to school, and watched and waited. Finally, just before Christmas, the pretended spirit of Mr. Bradley promised Mrs. Bradley a Christmas present. She was directed to place some money in her desk and wait. She did so, putting the money, as she supposed, securely under lock and key. In due time, the money disappeared, and on Christmas, Mrs. Bradley found in the bedroom adjoining the sitting room a beautiful pair of vases, with a note saying they were from her dead husband. The family were called in to see the marvelous sight. Mr. Austin F. Johnson examined them and beheld what had until then escaped notice, a trademark. It was a paper mark fastened on the bottom of one of the vases. This he quietly removed and went downtown. At Breed and Murray's, he found the owner of the mark. They had sold them to a young girl, wondering where she obtained the money to buy them. Mr. Breed was quietly taken to Mrs. Bradley's, the girl called in and recognized. She did not know Mr. Breed, but evidently suspected something because the next communication from Mr. Bradley assured Mrs. Bradley that Margaret had nothing to do with the vases. So the mystery was out at last, but the girl was not immediately exposed, only closely watched. The lock on the desk was changed, and no more articles were taken from there. At last, Thoroughly satisfied that the girl had been the author of all the strange performances, she was taken into a private room, charged with them, and confessed. This was on Thursday of last week. She not only confessed to performing all the tricks, writing all the notes, but she confessed to purloining the money. How much she took, she doesn't know. She does not think she took as high as $500. Think she may have taken in all $300. She took it at various times and from various places. Last evening, the girl and her mother were sent for by Mrs. Bradley, and we went to that lady's residence to see her go through some of her manipulations. Of course, the girl was in great distress. Her mother had told her that she must confess everything, and that there were several parties present to witness her revelations. The stand was brought out, the girl placed her hands on it, and Mrs. Bradley placed her hands over the girls, holding them fast. In this position, the stand was moved by the girl readily, and easily over the carpet to the piano. Then the girl lifted her foot, 
and with the toe of her slipper ran lightly or otherwise over the keys. Stooping down, she took the tea bell between her teeth, lifted it and rang it, and put it against Mrs. Bradley's face. Then she stooped down again and with her forehead touched the knob of the tea bell and showed how she rang that. Then she moved the stand into the bedroom to the head of the bed, stooped down, took the edge of the pillow slip between her teeth and threw the pillow onto the table and then onto the bed. Then she put out her foot, seized the leg of the bed, and pulled it out into the room. When asked how she did it before without any apparent effort, she said that she had prepared the casters beforehand so that the bed moved very easily. Mrs. Bradley then sat down in her reclining chair, and the girl went through the head-dressing scene. She says she used one hand only in dressing Mrs. Bradley's hair, and worked with the other, but Mrs. Bradley is quite positive both the girl's hands were on her head. It may be the girl laid her face on one side of Mrs. Bradley while operating, yet she denies it. She also denies having anything to do with the crash on the piano when she was on the opposite side of the room and out of its reach. Mrs. B.F. Four, who was holding her hand at the time, and who was present last evening, says she is satisfied, and always has been, that the girl knew all about it. She has always believed her an imposter. Mrs. Fuller is a sister-in-law of Mrs. Bradley. To test the power of the girl, we placed our hands upon hers, and she moved the stand. As we said, the girl was in great distress and excited. When she twisted the stand, we felt a movement of the muscles of her hands, but when she drew it along steadily, not a movement or tremor was to be detected. She also favored us with a specimen of her handwriting, which corresponded nicely with the notes purporting to be from the, from the spirit of Mr. Bradley. This con seems fairly benign to me, though. For while there definitely was money stolen, it seems that it was basically just centered around making this old woman feel a bit better about things. So, seems relatively harmless. Hoodoo in addition to being a word used for southern folk magic, was also a word commonly used to refer to cursed places or objects. One such was a sawmill in Indiana, described in the following story. Nashville, Indiana, August 12th. C.C. Hopper, town clerk and one of the most prominent men and largest lumber dealers in the county, has had the patience of Job this last year. Mr. Hopper started out as a workman in the carpenter's trade. He soon accumulated a little money with which he purchased machinery for a sawmill. He obtained ground and erected a building for the mill. He filled several large contracts for lumber and soon had in operation one of the largest sawmills in the county. Mr. Hopper met with success in the lumber and sawmill business and soon erected a large building in which he put machinery for a planing mill and took on a large force of men. The mill was running day and night. A short time ago, fire, late at night, destroyed the entire mill with a large quantity of lumber. His home, back on the bank, was saved by hard work. A few days after the fire, Mr. Hopper erected a building in the southern part of town and again purchased machinery for a sawmill. Misfortunes came thick and fast to employees of the mill. William Mogul had a lathe driven through his hand, and later on had three fingers almost cut off. David Stahl was crippled for life, his hand being crushed. C.C. Hopper was, in, was injured several times. His hands were lacerated, and hot metal was thrown in his face while he was pouring it into a machine. Fire destroyed the mill two months ago at a heavy loss. J.E. Kennedy narrowly escaped death by a remarkable leap over a bluff, a saw log passing over him and badly bruising him. He is unable to work. Sherman Persefield was injured several months ago by the bursting of an emery wheel. He was struck in the abdomen and his hip injured. A few days ago, lightning struck a, struck a tree by the mill, and the mill had to shut down, every employee being shocked. Last week, a horse was knocked down while the men were unloading logs. M.J. Hopper, a brother of C.C. Hopper, had a finger cut off. J.E. Hopper, while hunting, accidentally shot himself through the mouth, disfiguring him for life. The proprietor of the mill takes the matter philosophically and thinks the worm will turn sometime. 
and other mysterious hoodoo lay at a vineyard in central California. Fresno, California, August 1st. Mysterious death lurks in a big vineyard near Collis. Everybody has left the place, and the authorities are preparing to begin a searching investigation on the premises. On July 23rd, Mrs. I. Jacobs, cook for the vineyard employees, was taken suddenly ill and died within 12 hours. Two days later, Superintendent Ring was stricken with a similar malady. He is still living, but will probably die. On Sunday last, A. Peterson, a vineyard workman, was taken ill in the same manner and died within 30 hours. Physicians declare that both deaths were due to paralysis of the heart and that Ring is also stricken with a severe affection of the heart. The local medical fraternity is greatly puzzled. Hoodoo was also an old term used for what we now know as voodoo. An account of some voodoo ceremonies or offerings, which took place in the St. Louis Cemetery No. 2, in the most famous home of voodoo, New Orleans, is described below. New Orleans, August 12th. The hoodoo still has believers in New Orleans, as was revealed the other day when an ordinary beef tongue, wrapped tightly with white thread and stuck full of pins and needles, was found in one of the tombs in the old St. Louis Cemetery. The tongue was put in an old tomb in that section of the St. Louis Cemetery, lying in the square bounded by St. Louis, Connie, and Robertson Streets in Claiborne Avenue. This particular burial spot lies nearest the Connie Street entrance to the cemetery. You can't miss it. It will attract attention almost as soon as you enter the burial ground. It is one of those low tombs built, probably, immediately after the last cemetery had been opened. Just a small part of the brickwork is visible to the eye, owing to the growth of tall weeds, grass, rubbish, and other things. For that reason, and unless you had stood over the tomb, or low vault, you could not possibly have noticed the tongue. A woman did. She was slowly walking through the cemetery when this especially low tomb attracted her attention. She tried to read the inscription on the old wooden plate, but was unable, owing to its great age. It was while she gazed so intently at this wooden headboard that she noticed the tongue, which has caused at least two young girls to, le to lose a few hours sleep each night they have gone to bed since the tongue first put it in its appearance. At first this woman thought the tongue a Mardi Gras mask, or something of similar, but once she moved it slightly she saw very plainly what the object was which attracted her attention. One of the assistants to the sexton was called to the scene, and it was only a question of a minute or two before he had the tongue out in broad daylight. He held the thing high up in his hands. At the jump, he did not really know what it was. It had been fixed up in such a shape that an expert on tongues would have hesitated before giving a definite answer as to what it was. The manner in which the assistant handled the object, which was intended to conjure someone, scared the two young girls to such an extent that they were mightily tempted to run out of the cemetery and never enter it again. However, the little crowd which congregated about the assistant reassured the two girls, and they were finally induced to take a good look at the tongue. They did this with horror written on their faces. One of them said that she would not go through a similar experience. All kinds of suggestions were offered as to why the tongue was placed in the tomb. The woman who discovered it thought possibly that the one who put it there wanted to punish herself because she had a bad tongue. Others did not agree with her. They had ideas of their own. A conservative estimate of one who saw the tongue when it was removed from the tomb last Sunday afternoon by the assistant sexton furnishes the intelligence that fully three or four spools of thread had been wrapped around the poor dead cold tongue. And as for the pine and needles... Those who saw the object said that there were at least five or six packs of steel in what at one time formed part of the makeup of some big steer or cow. The thread was wrapped around the tongue so closely that it was next impossible to even get the slightest glimpse of it. All that could be seen of the tongue was that portion of the base which was allowed to remain open and plain to the eye. It could be seen that the tongue had lain in the tomb but a short time. Decay had not yet set in. The pins and needles were stuck in the tongue in a manner that could not but attract attention, that is, if one could possibly take an artistic view of the job. A peculiar feature is the manner in which the needles and pins were stuck in the edge of the tongue. They were placed here so closely 
that no room whatever was left for anyone to stick in an additional one. That must be one of the requirements to work a Conjurer Hoodoo game properly. And the one who fixed this tongue up certainly knew her business and showed that she had been at the game before. The tongue was taken over to the office of the sexton and there cut open in the hope of finding some precious lucre or some valuables, for generally in the case of a hoodoo, the one working the game allows money to play some part. No money was found in it. Quite a bit of excitement prevailed where the assistant was cutting the tongue open. The knife he used was borrowed from one of the girls mentioned before. The assistant merely requested the use of the knife without saying to what purpose he was going to put it. She let him have it. Imagine the poor girl's horror when she saw him cut the tongue with its keen edge. And to think that was one of the best table knives we had at home, she remarked to her friend who stood close by. What will mother say? I guess we had better not tell. That will be the better plan. Something will have to be done to get rid of the knife. I don't want to use it anymore, nor do I care to see any of them at home make use of it after touching that nasty-looking tongue. It frightens me to even give it a thought. The girl would possibly have gone along in this manner for an indefinite time had her friends not told her to keep quiet and forget her troubles. So much for the tongue and those who figured in that part of its history recorded in the foregoing. There are those who may be impressed with the idea that since the tongue has been disturbed that the hoodoo intended, possibly for innocent persons, will not work. Others who believe in the game, however, hold that as soon as the tongue was placed in the tomb, the conjure began. If the hoodoo did work, it is a matter known only to the victim and the person working the game. That ends the story of the mysterious tongue. A brief conversation with the assistant sexton the other afternoon revealed the fact that the tongue incident was not the first where an attempt was made to practice the so-called hoodoo. It is said that during the previous week, an old stuffed cat was found. The animal had been dead but a short while and was stuffed before the skin had dried. This hoodoo was also found in an old tomb in the same cemetery. The skin was cut open and among a lot of other things was found the sum of $2.50. In other instances where someone in an attempt to get even with the other fellow resorted to a hoodoo practice. A photograph of a handsome young white man was thrown in one of the tombs to be left there for all time. That was the original intention, presumably, but again the employees of the cemetery association intervened and the hoodoo was broken. This picture was found some time ago. It was possibly placed in the tomb by some young girl who had fallen out with her sweetheart, and, believing Conjure would help to recapture him, placed his photo among the dead. And still another attempt was made recently to work a hoodoo on somebody. In this instance, two little dolls were used. One was supposed to represent the form of a man, and the other was that of a woman. Both objects were placed in one bottle that contained some chemical preparation or another. The bottle was found in an old tomb by one of the employees. At a glance, he knew what it was. The liquid was allowed to run out of the bottle, and then both dolls were taken out. On the clothes of the doll supposed to be a man was found the name of some male person living in the city, and on the skirt of the supposed woman was also found a name. The names were those of a man and a woman, who are both quite well known in this city. Both dolls are still in the office of the sexton of the cemetery. The liquid has since dried out of the clothing. For reasons better known in secret, the name of the man and woman will not appear in print. There are numerous other instances where attempts have been made to hoodoo men and women of the city through means of placing certain objects in old broken-down tombs. This practice is still common among the Negroes, particularly the older members of that race. The general run of the Negroes here believe in the hoodoo game, and through fear more than anything else, they generally work their powers on their intended victims. There are a thousand and one ways in which the Negroes, and a few whites for that matter, though it only prevails among the ignorant classes, work the conjure game, and much has been already said of of that practice. The cemetery racket, though, appears to be an entirely new one, and for that reason, some of the facts are given in the above. It will no doubt be years and years before the hoodoo belief has been driven out of the minds of the Negroes. It appears they will believe in it for all eternity. And that's all the stories I have for you this week. Next episode, we'll be rejoining the loose series I began last week with the washroom murder episode, and it'll be on the killing of Norman Bechtel. As always, 
A list of the sources I used for this episode can be found in the show description. And as always, if you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77, lowercase f, lowercase d, all one word, at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. Happy Halloween, everyone! Oh,